0: Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Thanks very much for coming out in your lunch. I'm going to give quite a personal walkthrough of my life working with art and technology rather than anything myself and the Data as Culture programme, to give you a bit of context, so I'm a contemporary art curator and I specialise particularly in the increasingly irrelevant term of media art, digital and electronic. I say increasingly irrelevant because I think that everybody is doing that now, in one way or well spoken of as a slightly different term. Um, and Data as Culture is now in its third. It's unusually led by an artist, Judy Freeman, who's here eating her sausage sandwich. and. Um, Of course, Gavin Starks, our CEO, is also highly responsible for the creative direction. And I've been here since last June when I was to come in as an associate curator in residence to work with the team. So the bulk of my practice over the last 20 years has actually been at the Science Museum in London um, where I have really over a period of about 17 years and I commissioned artists working in all different sorts of media art and technology art um, rubbish we worked with everything you can imagine technology and the Science Museum built the welcome wing which you can see here with the actually pasted (laughs) <laughs> a password for something I'm doing on that inadvertently. <laughs> this is what the welcome wing looked like in 2000 when the new building had just been built. And at the time it was built as a contemporary uh, theatre, of contempor- heralded a new era of science communication for the Science Museum that was very, very discursive and brought in a lot of different subjective views as well as the author- authoritative or neutral voice of the science museums. Um, and art was a really big part of that. And this gallery here was called Who Am I Still There? That's about biomedical science. And this gallery at the top was called Digitopolis, and that's no longer there. A project that looked at um, digital technologies. And I'll talk you through some of the commissions, they give you a, a bit of a trajectory of how I ended up here. So I did a fine art course, and I actually studied as a painter originally, and I didn't quite reach their heights. Um, but I did graduate smack in the middle of the 1990s recession, um, and I really found myself asking a lot of questions at that time was whether I wanted to continue as a practising artist or not, which I actually was at the time was very, very productive, very energetic, the young British artists who are now, and there was lots of good stuff there was also an awful lot of what i felt to be overly self-referential purposeless and wasteful work around and i just couldn't get and i know i might see it differently if i were to go back in time and start again but that's how i felt at the time you know in my early 20s um so i began to look around and meaning to be honest and i found um an, a publication the Arts Council published, new advent of um, digital media, it was called interactive media then wasn't it, in, about the opportunities for interpretation and communication rather than art. It, um, it really caught my attention, the thought disseminated and distributed in the ways that computing technology suggested it might at the time. Also doing a masters in contemporary art at the Royal College in curating contemporary art at the time because that had been the direction I'd chosen. I um, got together with a group of friends who included Julie Freeman actually um, and also the highly influential British artist Jonathan Jones-Morris and um, we set up a digital media company working for clients across the board. It, w- it was a, um, an active commercial company. To, uh, oh, there you are! forgot to go onto that slide that was sensation and that was some really so artists beginning to think about where we locate ourselves and how technology um, and back to Studio Fish, we, we didn't write Pong, but we did decide that uh, and it was very apparent very quickly because none of my balls ever came back that I was known and she became very good. Balls Your balls always come back, right. absolutely. Um, doing all of that was I started thinking about the influence of computers on our lives um, and of course this is 1993 a long time for everyone was carrying a supercomputer in the back of their pockets and it to somehow bring media art ideas to a broader audience I kind of hesitated before I thought wrote the term media art ideas because um I've owned by that is really um the idea of a commitment to acknowledging that, technos- that in order to avoid those spaces becoming entirely corporate or government-led, it's rid of those spaces as well. And that's how I felt in the early 1990s, looking at the Advent Institute, which essentially is looking at underlying structures that are changing the form of... Now, I'm not with people who think that digital technology makes it any more likely that anyone can be an artist than the universally accessible tool, the common pencil that is the most successful and I do believe anyone can draw. Um, but I also do think that the democratisation of high and low cultures that have been brought about by the ability for each one of us to publish and broadcast what we like, um, which is development and influence on behaviour and ideas. And maybe we might come back to that. Some of the projects I've done with artists, um, particularly during my time at the Science Museum, and then what we're doing here, an artist who um, writes all his own software, and it's called Watched and Measured and the. The purpose of Digitopolis was to explain digital technology through, of course, within a couple of years of that gallery being um, launched, the, the you were completely different from the descriptions of digital technology that it, des- that it described. But the kind of common themes that the gallery was spit up to, I think, still stand up today, and that was looking at me- uh, computer vision, networks, futures, and privacy and surveillance. And the museum brought me in at the time as a curator to show digital art as examples of outstanding applications. Um, And I invited David Rokeby um, and several others. And um, this piece is called Watched and Measured. It won the first interactive. And we'd asked David to create a piece that address works and writing all their own software from scratch were really working with software engines that had taken one particular engine and david had a piece called watch um, a street scene and the camera would capture there'd be several different algorithms that it would flick between still objects and it took on a very very political um role in the street because of course homeless people who were sitting and begging would be um completely absent from the moving scenes, and would be the only thing present in the still scenes, for example, and there were many other examples. And we, of course, were bringing this into a museum environment, a very constructed environment. Um, but um, he, we, we, the structure that it's on is a sort of big metal, glass and metal structure that was already a fixed structure with the exhibition design. So we've got one screen of moving images of people moving through the museum and every now and then he wrote a digital zoom that zoomed in on their heads and their faces as you could see, actually nearly every face in that shot I think is David when he was testing it Um, and he also applied a word onto them, a completely abstracted random word and it might say anxious, happy, excited, relevant When you think about how long ago this is, you know, 15 years ago, it was really starting. David really wanted to provoke um, thoughts about the subjectivity of network systems. And this was at a time when there was a lot of conversation about the validity of the photographic and the CCTV image in law. So really prescient, really interesting project, you know, 15 years ago. By the way, um, the Science Museum team in their research for this gallery hadn't seen any other example that was as good at a digital Zoom as David had written himself, which again was a big shout for artists and artist-led research. So Jonathan Jones-Morris and Tessa Elliott made a piece called Machination, which is a, d- a development of an existing work as well. And what happened is um, a self-learning neural network um, uh, Compared images of visitors that it captured at site, um, and mapped a series of a database of household objects that the artist had created against the patterns of visitors' faces, and resubmitted you what it thought you most resembled. Um, I was most often a um, Scotty dog, which was quite upsetting—a little kind of. Um, ceramic object. Um, But it really raised a lot of questions about how machines see things differently than we do um, and asked questions about whether they think differently of course as well. It reinforced the fact that representation is a matter of opinion and, um, and that humans and machines represent things differently. Jumping into 2004, in 2004 I was the senior curator for a gallery called nf 14 with their families and teachers and it looks at the future of how energy might power our lives and what the truths ch- are. So it's a formal learning environment. Um, but it was really important within that formal learning environment to bring art into the mix, to allow um, people to sort of see things from many different perspectives. That was quite a defining feature of museum environments in the, in the sort of last 20 years or 15 years of bringing together disparate elements um, and what we wanted we decided to make it a hands-on gallery we did want to see if the art could bring a sense of physicality so I approached the artist Christian Muller who's a German media artist and said can you think of a physical encounter with a floor-to-ceiling capacitive pole that if you touch it gives you an electric shock now you don't not touch you get a very strong warning sound um, but if you do touch it, you will get an electric shock. So there's a big question there of whether um, the shock is punishment or reward. And he's really you know, playing subversively um, with museum instructional language to provoke a parent, very complex, to engineer a fail-safe way of making that um, safe in a museum environment, but it was, and um, visitors love it. So there you go. Um, so the last work I'll talk about from the Science Museum is quite a nice segue between there and here in its listening post by Mark Hanson and Ben Rubin. Mark Hansen is a statistician and Ben Rubin is a sound artist and they met um, towards the end of the 1990s at a Bell Labs um, uh, workshop for art, artists and scientists and um, they Kind of, the idea of the workshops was to just see what happens, to play around together. And they were really interested in the text-based internet at the time. And this sudden moment when, suddenly, masses and masses and masses of people were taking advantage of the ability to broadcast themselves and to call out and reach out and enter into communication with one another over the network. And they started to analyse the data Um, and what they came up with was noticing the patterns of the ways in which humans communicate online. So some of the first tasks they set themselves was um, would, would they No, actually, the first question they asked themselves is, what would the sound of the Internet be like? And I think they had some thoughts about whether they were going to sonify the Internet. And they sort of make it that simple or that straightforward. They wanted to sort of see what was being said. And when they analysed the patterns of how people talk to each other, the most common starter of every single bit of text they looked at in Internet Relay, um, chat rooms and all sorts of different places, um, was I am. So they began to capture fragments of what they called I am sequences. And they built this structure that's 251 vacuum fluorescent screens, sort of in a curved, sort of theatrical curtain sort of installation, floor to ceiling. Um, And they play out different movements, if you like, that are created according to different statistical sort of analyses of least used words, (coughs) most used words, um, things that start with I am, things that start with I love, and so on. And every time it... I'm sorry I haven't got a a moving image footage of it, but you can find that on the internet. Um, Every time it sort of enters a new movement, the size of the words changes, the motion of the words changes, and while the words are being played out across the screen, sometimes one word across all of them, (coughs) sometimes ten words in each screen, there's a synthesised voice sort of reading and singing out accompanied by a lovely soundtrack that's got modem sounds, clattering footsteps, and it's very, very powerful. Um, And... What it is recognised as being is an outstanding engineering achievement in the realms of real-time data visualisation and data mining technology. And it's really, you know, their exploration of what, how they could capture the content and magnitude of the text-based internet is really, really powerful. And today, as the text-based internet is kind of really, you know, potentially dying, there are huge questions that this work raises. It becomes a snapshot of a very, very important point in history. And nor are the artists unaware of the political ramifications. So, one of the things Mark Hansen said is, you know, the advent of these enormous repositories of digital information presents us with an interesting challenge. How can we represent and interpret such complex, abstract and socially important data? And both he and Mark, uh, Ben, really recognise that now the simple act of compiling data has serious political implications, which, you know, are alluded to in this work. Um, We took the opportunity of having that work at the Science Museum, which was on display for about seven years, and it's not at the moment, but I think it will come back, um, of inviting a group of young people to work with us to create their own work. And so I had, um, I think it was about... 15 young people, young Muslim British women between the ages of 13 and 19 came and had spent a day each with different media artists and um, they worked with artists who were photographers, uh, Scrapyard challenge robots with Jonah Brooker Cohen, they did video sniffing and they did a whole series of things that explored the impact of technology on their lives and they had an exhibition alongside Listening Post which was again a really important thing is that members of a community who might feel disengaged from technology or from art Um, get to make and do stuff and get involved, and I think that's something that is quite dear to me, is getting people to have that kind of interest. So I've touched on actually some of the issues that are at the heart of the Data as Culture exchange and collaboration. Um, And one of the things that is that Data as Culture was initiated by um, Gavin and Julie within days of the ODI actually being operational. very much about behaviour change as much as it is about any technologies which my king here um, at the ODI recognises that there's a big challenge to create public dialogue about um, and shared language actually about what we're doing that and critically responding to that so I don't think anybody here um, and I certainly with something that is a fundamental tool that's all about supporting the ambitions of the Open Data Institute from a cultural that kind of reflected different data sources that might challenge understanding of how what the programme looked at questions of ownership and authority over personal and public data. The umbrella theme data anthropologies where we're looking at the human at the centre of all of the data exhibition here at the moment there's a piece of work over there and if you wander around afterwards you can look at Thompson and Craig. Um, but a big thing we're doing immediately now is focusing on practice. So we've opened, I'll tell you about their projects in a second, but I at the same time want to tell you about, it is a web-based artwork that we co-commissioned with the space. And it's a web, and it is actually an open data artwork. Hello. <coughs> so this piece draws on medicine science projects, Zooniverse users, as they click and swipe around the globe really exploring what the living qualities of data and metadata might be and the, the fundamental qualities of data. I think we look to data to provide us this, um, it was very much there's other things happening here that aren't so obvious and, and we really should be exploring those as well and I find that a really in, intriguing and exciting thought and I kind of feel like this piece asks, you know, if data had lives of their own. We don't know whether Julie's process is going to result in a definitive answer. And it explores data in terms of what is unpredictable and what's unknowable. And these are corporates are very often not concerned with, and I think that's really important. And I tell th- that we need us as much as we need it. So that's that. And Julie. So this is Thompson and Craighead, and they are the at the moment some of their existing work. And. Um, This particular piece, um, what what we like about their work is that they really often draw on the huge databases and repositories of human broadcast on Google and they invite reflection on how mechanisms like the World Wide Web does. So decorative news feeds takes live news headlines from around the world and transforms them into algorithmically drawn animated lines that create sort of beautiful unique pathways across the screen. It, when you go out you'll see headlines travel around the world. Their original meanings and implications are sort of transformed as so they cross over links. It raises questions, you know, about the mutability of data and information. Being that here, then walking into our kitchen where we've got the news on the BBC News and you've got the same as well, you know, that we're constantly constructing our reality and this really reminds us of that, these new spaces. Um, and as I've said, they draw on YouTube footage and corporates around online media. Um, and People like John and Ali, who have been working together for over 20 years, since before the first commercial web browsers, open data artists specifically, and none of their existing work is specifically open data, although a lot of it is shared and commissioned during their residency with us. So that will be quite exciting. She's an award-winning, up-and-coming photographic artist. Um, she uses quite sort of bold, by the way. Um, and she also is very interested in scientific processes and capture, but then she realised that she was working with data already and she was really intrigued at the prospect of coming to work. But She really always draws from online archives and the internet and personal narratives, which questions, you know, the words. These images are from um, a series called Fairy Tale for Sale, where she became interested in selling on their wedding gowns, come up with a myriad of ways of... Um, <laughs> Of re-identifying themselves, actually, Um, and so that, um, and what she said in relation to her residency here is, my art practice to their previous pseudo analysis, head first into the world of head first into the world of data. I'm really excited to see what appears from playing with enormous possibilities of everyday statistics, create. But it's really exciting um, to to be part of that, which will also don't want to go there yet, um, which will also uh, with communities into the work we do. Um, so I guess I'll conclude being able to work on this programme, which is the position I think ODI holds in relation, I admit I've stolen that term from the artist Stephen Willits who uses it frequently in his frustration, um, particularly in relation to merging of technologies and systems. Um, and I think that's happening a lot to do with the developments in the network. Um, I take the theft of my original work very seriously and would draw to your attention if it's protected under UK of my website, designs, sculptures, photos or SEO where the text or images are found being used. It's explicit that the making of what is called derivative work, that means work based or derived from another person's had some bad experiences. uh, and I don't feel the moral right to be identified as the authors of their work and to earn a living from that. I couldn't help thinking this came across quite heavy-handed, particularly as it happens, this particular person is enormously, incredibly difficult to replicate this person's skill. She's got considerable technical skills working with um, physical materials. That's what we're all working on as we move into the open data landscape. And it did make me think, where are we going? So I had and anyone can challenge this, I'm sure it's very blunt, what I've written, but hierarchical thinking seems quite last century, maybe distributed is more now. Objects, they will always be objects, but data is obviously joining objects. Mine, as in mine, it's mine. Let's admit the fact that we're constant states of flux, as identities, as people, as material matter. Bit. Um, authored, shared, boxes like science, art, technology, Let's think about systems and think past, obviously, people in charge, telling people what to think and do. No, let's all transmit and we're all saying what we're democratic and the defined disciplines move to the hybrid. That's what I'd like anyway. Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.